The answer to the question is yes. The sermon is going to be short. I already know. Y'all are like, what else can we fit in today? The Christian tap dancers, we told them to come back next week. Man, when I looked at this and I was like, we got the preschool, we got first communion, we got communion. And I was like, Lord, help me. Okay, so read along with me in, as we're talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. We're in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. So this series, if you've not been here so far, we've been talking about how you see Jesus throughout the Bible. I want to give you a couple quick things just in reality. Jesus has always been there. If you believe in the Holy Trinity, you believe that there's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There's never been a moment that there wasn't the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So when you see Jesus, when you see Jesus saying something in the New Testament, that's the Father saying it. When you see the Father saying something in the Old Testament, that's Jesus saying it. There's never been a point that there wasn't a Holy Trinity. And you can look right there in Genesis chapter 2 where they turn to one another and say, let us create people in our own image. Uh, so this is specifically, however, looking at places where we see Jesus in the Old Testament. And this is the Davidic prophecy about the Davidic throne that we're going to see later on. So read with me now in 2 Samuel 7. When the Lord had brought peace to the land and King David was settled in his palace, David summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, here I am living in this beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out in the tent. Nathan replied, go ahead and do what you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a temple to live in? I've never lived in a temple from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until now. My home has always been in a tent, moving from one place to another. And I've never once complained to Israel's leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I've never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful seat or temple? Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I chose you to lead my people Israel when you were just a shepherd boy, tending your sheep out in the pasture. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've destroyed all your enemies. Now I will make your name famous throughout the earth, and I have provided a permanent homeland for my people Israel, a secure place where they will never be disturbed. It will be their own land where wicked nations won't oppress them as they did in the past. From the time I appointed judges to rule my people, and I will keep you safe from all of your enemies. And now the Lord declares that he will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die, I will raise up one of your descendants, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will, who will build a house, a temple, for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will use other nations to punish him. But my unfailing love will be not taken from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your dynasty and your kingdom will continue for all time before me, and your throne will be secure forever. So David went back. Excuse me. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything that the Lord had said. Have you ever wished that you'd been told no? You, you, you really wanted to be told yes, but you, afterwards your wish that you had been told no? Uh, it was Mother's Day of 1980, and I decided that I was going to build my mom a pool in the backyard. I was seven. Uh, I was seven, and I started digging in the backyard. Uh, no one was home. Uh, or at least I don't know where they, my parents were. I was, you know, they, they pretty much let me alone by myself with like a beef jerky and a banana in one hand and just went out of town, I think. But anyway, so I started digging in the backyard and I had, I got out every kind of, I got out the kind of like shovel that's got the flat end of it and the shovel that's got the pointed end of it up on and then the shovel that you dig 
posts, and none of them were really fun to work with, so I worked with them as much as I could, and I decided that I would just get as much as I could going in this one spot. And as providentially would happen, I dug until I hit something hard, and then I knew that I was on the right track when water started coming up into the hole that I dug. So I was like, this must be it. Thank you, God, for providing for me as much as you can. Well, then water kept coming up and kept coming up, and then it became less of a pool and more of a swampland in our backyard. And about that time, my mom came home and I showed her my Mother's Day present to her. And she said, I wish you'd ask me whether you could have dug me a pool or not, because I would have told you no. And I said, well, that would have ruined all the fun, wouldn't it? And I wished, I wished after having fixed the pipe and then filling in the hole and all those kind of things that I wished I'd been told no. And here's a point in the Bible where David gets told no. David gets told no, but we hear a beautiful story that comes out of it. I want you to consider this because when we talk about David having a heart like the Lord, I'm guilty of the fact that usually when things are not going my way, usually when things are bad, usually when I'm in a crisis, usually when I'm at a point of need, that's the time that my thought and my mind shift towards the Lord. And I start to begin to call out to him and I start to begin to cry out to him and ask him questions. But David shows you a little bit of a glimpse into what it's like to have a heart like the Lord in that when he is at peace, when his enemies have been submitted to him, when God has brought peace upon the land, he's actually got a home there, he has built a temple, that's when his mind goes to, what can I do for God? What can I do for the Lord? So the Lord has lived, and I use this term lived, in a tabernacle. Now, we've been talking about the tabernacle for a couple of weeks, so we're not going to go back over all that again. But it was a way for the people to take the presence of the Lord with them. And wherever they went, he would his presence would go up, and they would have to reassemble the tabernacle. And there were all kinds of rules, and the rules weren't meant for God. The rules were meant for the people to understand how holy and righteous God is. And so David is now settled in Jerusalem, and one of the other main things that's happened is that the Israelites prior to David during Saul's time thought to themselves, you know what, we're going to use the ark just like Indiana Jones's Germans thought they would too. You see, the Germans weren't just as dumb as the Philistines. The Philistines were stupid, and they were, anyway, they're all dumb. Anyway, you can't use the ark like that. That's the end of the story. So they took the ark down to Philistia. God inflicted the Philistines with uh, rats and tumors, and so they sent the ark back with gold rats and gold tumors. I would have liked to know what a gold tumor looked like. And David's ark is back. The enemies have been defeated. He is sitting there in a palace that when you smell, you can smell cedar, and it's a fine thing. And he looks out the window because of the city of David. Everything kind of comes down off the hill of Jerusalem, and he thinks to himself, hey, I'm sitting here in this nice palace, but the Lord is dwelling in a tabernacle, a tent, if you will. And David's thoughts are, let me go summon Nathan and see what he says. And at first, Nathan responds, I think, emotionally. Sounds like a good idea to me. But then the Lord speaks to Nathan during the night. And if you look at this text, you're going to go, but this is, how can this be about Jesus? Because obviously, we're talking about not just You know, he says, but then I'm going to raise up nations to punish him. And if he sins, well, that can't be talking about Jesus. Remember about prophecy. 
Prophecy is like two things, and I tried to explain this to our youth the other day as well. It's like an onion. It's got different layers for different times. It's also like a diamond, and it's got different facets. And the more facets that you look at it, or the more layers that you peel back. So this this text is talking, one, about Solomon, who is going to be one of David's offspring that is going to build the temple. There he is. And when Solomon sins, God's going to use other nations to discipline them. And we see this happening with the Babylonians and the Assyrians. But also there's going to give you a clue that this is not just talking about Solomon because he uses words like establish your throne forever. My unfailing love will never be taken from him. So we're talking about something that's eternal and that's not Solomon because Solomon passes away. David's dynasty, as it were, goes from David to Zedekiah. That's 400 years. And then when you get this part, where you go, well, where is there a king? Where is there someone who's going to sit on the throne? Who is it going to be? It is when Christ comes that his disciples make the connection. The connection comes first in Acts chapter 2, and in Acts chapter 2, 30 through 31, when Peter is addressing the crowd on the day of Pentecost, he says, you see, Jesus has to be alive. He has to be resurrected because he is the one that was prophesied about who was going to reign on David's throne forever. God promised that to David. It came true in Christ, and Christ lives. Therefore, Christ is the one prophesied to sit on David's throne forever as a kingship forever, out of David's line forever. But not only that, the author of Hebrews, and and I love how pastors, we do these things like in Hebrews 1, 5b. That just means the second half of verse 5. The author of Hebrew also quotes it and says, I will be his father and he will be my son, specifically quoting this text. So the New Testament guys that were rolling around with Jesus said, do you know who this one that was prophesied about that's going to sit on the throne of David forever? Do you know who he's going to be? He's Jesus. We saw it with our own eyes. We've seen it. The layers of prophecy have been peeled back. And now we're not just dealing with Solomon. We're dealing with Christ on the throne forever. So I've got two quick points for you. And the first one's about the gospel. The first one's about the gospel. The gospel is not just one more thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just one more thing. I'm not saying that David's trying to earn his salvation. I think David's looking out and he goes, God's done all these things for me. What can I do for God? The problem with, I think, oftentimes where we are is we run ourselves ragged doing a million different things. Man, at this time of year, moms, I give it to you. For some reason, the school system comes up with made-up holidays that they're sending to your kids. They're like, it's International Grasshopper Day. Go out and catch 50 of them, and if you don't, we're giving your kid a zero. And you're like, oh my gosh, I guess we're on the way to go making this birthday party and on the way of getting the Christmas tree up because it's the day after Halloween, and we've got to do that, and we're going to go get 50 of these things. And by the way, they said at church they're doing this shoebox deal, and there's this thing for casseroles out there. And you know what? God, what else can I do? for you. And I want to say that if that's your impression of the gospel, let me pull it back real quick. Because what happens is in this text, if you read a little bit further on David's response in verse 18, when God tells him no, but he says, but I'm going to set up for you a dynasty, a house that will go on forever. Someone in your lineage will sit on the throne forever. David's response is this. Do you deal with everyone like this? And then he says later on, God, you know what I'm really like. 
That's a tough one. I'm glad you all don't know how I'm really, what I'm really like. I'm glad you don't know that. It's sobering enough to know that the Lord knows that. But if I think for somehow that there's one more thing that I can do to please God, if there's one more thing that I could do to cause God to be pleased with me, I'm missing out on the fact that what God tells David to do is rest in what I'm going to do for you. And similarly enough, if you are in this place where you're like, my relationship with God is one that I've got to always keep him happy. I do my best. I come to church. I read my Bible. I give a little bit. I send some crayons to vacation Bible school every once in a while. God, is that enough? Is there one more thing that I can do? And secretly you're hoping, please, Lord, that let there not be one more thing that I can do. I'm here to tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ is not one more thing that you can do. It is the one thing that has been done for you that is worth more than anything else, and you can't bring anything to it. So when you and I come to this idea of what do we bring to God, what can we do for God, let me give you the both and. You can do nothing for God. You can do everything for God. Hang on. David already was the chosen one. It's pretty amazing. David, in all his sin, God chooses to covenant with a sinful man who is going to do terrible sinful things. And God doesn't say, hey, by the way, let me just go ahead and tell you, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to covenant with you and you're going to be awful, David. He covenants with him, promises him and says, rest in my promise. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, how can I rest in God's promise when I don't do the right thing ever? How can I rest in God's promise where every day left over to my own devices, I'm digging a pool for my mom in the backyard, hitting a water main, and that's the way my life looks. And God says to you, I know, Romans 5, when you were dead in your sins, that's when I sent my son, that you would rest in what he did, and then you would live your life out of gratitude after that. You know what you can do for me? You can do everything to give me glory. None of it earns your way into heaven, but all of it says, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. The second thing, and just real quick, because I know we've got to get to communion and we've got to worship a little bit more, is I channeled my inner Jesse Jackson on this one. David's throne is occupied, the one on it is satisfied, and he is forever glorified. And someone say... <laughs> I don't know what was in, in my head yesterday afternoon when I was writing this sermon. I've got to go to a Catholic school from second grade to fourth grade, and y'all, I got in trouble all the time. It was a weekly occurrence, if not a daily occurrence. Now, let me tell you something. Those people believe in corporal punishment. Like they salute him on a daily basis. Hey, corporal punishment, how are you? Come on in and beat our kids. And so there was Sister Mary Margaret. She was the vice principal. There was Sister Margaret. I don't know. They just didn't have a lot of names amongst the Catholics. And there's Mary Margaret and Margaret. But then there was the priest. And all I know was he was, he was Father Peter. And it went like this. If Sister Mary Margaret was around when you got in trouble, you could talk your way out of it. Probably just sit at the chalkboard and write, I will not be a Protestant for all my life or something like that 50 times. It was bad. Like, guys, I, I can't even tell you the stories. There's the statute of limitations. If Sister Margaret was there, you weren't going to sit down that afternoon. If Father Peter was there, Father Peter was going to call your parent and make your parent watch while he smacked you and then said, now, would you like a turn, Mr. Cummings? 
And so we were always wondering about who's going to be in that office. Here's the beauty of about the knowing the one that's sitting on the throne. The one that's sitting on the throne, Jesus Christ, never has a bad day. The one that's sitting on the throne is satisfied, not because of what you did, but is satisfied because of his own blood that was brought on your behalf to pay for your sin and satisfy the Father. He is satisfied. The throne is occupied. He is satisfied. He never has a bad day. And I want to tell you something. Your resistance never rubs out his patience. There's no this idea of like, man, I've really already prayed about 15 times a day. I don't think I can throw up God another one. Or I just sinned. I can't pray now. Don't superimpose any humanity on the one and the quality of the one who's forever sitting on the throne. The one who's forever sitting on the throne never runs out of patience with you. The one that's never sitting, the one that's always sitting on the throne has ears and a heart bigger than you can imagine. The one who's sitting on the throne knows not only that you will sin, but that you just sin and still says, come to me. Come to me. Tell me what you did. I will forgive you. Tell me what you did. I know you did it. I chose to covenant with you knowing what I was getting into. I'm not ever going to be satisfied by your behavior. Praise the Lord. I'm satisfied by my behavior, my blood on the cross. The throne is occupied by someone who was satisfied with his own work. And he is forever going to be glorified. And what you and I need to do is trust him. The reason why we come and we take communion is because we're saying We did not do this on our own. This wasn't our idea. It wasn't our idea for God to give the life of his son. It was God's idea. And Christ said, I, you gave me a body that willingly I would lay it down. Isaiah 53. It wasn't the Jews or the Romans that crushed Jesus. Isaiah 53 tells us, for it was the Lord's goodwill to crush him that when his life is made a sacrifice for us, he will have a multitude of heirs and children because we're saved. And the, and the, my favorite metal band of all time took it as their life verse by his stripes. We are healed. So when you and I come to the table today, we come knowing that we have been given everything that we could never do by the one who's sitting on the throne forever glorified, who is completely satisfied not by anything that we've done, but by his own blood shed on the cross for us. I'm going to ask our communion service to come down. What we ask you to do is take your communion back with you to your seat. We'll all take communion together. If you would like prayer, come down. I will be with, be here to pray with you in the front. If you're not a believer, or if you've never professed Christ as your Lord and Savior, Table's not for everyone. Table's for those that profess Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you want to take time and pray, the Bible also tells us, don't come and take communion if you have sin on your heart or sin against your brother or sister. Take time to ask for forgiveness. Let me pray for us, and then you can come and come down. Jesus, upon this bread and upon this cup, we ask your blessings because you are so good. Lord God, we're so thankful that you are not one that is blown by the winds of emotion, or fickleness, or how you are feeling that day, Lord God, but that you are solid, immutable, unchanging, always loving, forgiving, satisfied by the blood on the cross. 
Lord Jesus, be glorified in our lives. Let us know that we can't do things to earn your grace or salvation, but that we would accept it freely, rest in it, and live out in joy obedience to you that you would be glorified through our lives. Come for all things are ready.